Well, as I get older, I find that I'm discovering more flaws in my character than I did before. I don't know what it is. Maybe in my old age, my heart is becoming a little bit more tender and I'm a little more sensitive than I used to be. I like to think that maybe it's that I'm gaining some wisdom as I age and I'm able to see things from a different perspective. That's my story. But I'm definitely picking up on a few things that I have missed in the past. And recently I had a flaw, a character flaw pointed out to me. So when I don't get them, sometimes God brings along some people who very clearly articulate them, of course, in great love. And so that happened to me recently. Um, I guess I've always known it was there. I mean, it didn't really impact me until uh, I was at the bank with my boys recently. And of course, the lobby, as you know, is closed. And so if you're going to do banking, you have to do it through the drive through And so we get to my bank and they have three windows. And of course, every single one of them has a car in it. And so, you know, being a shrewd driver, I, as I pulled into the, the parking lot, I stayed far enough back that I could just wait until the next car left and then I'd be sure, you know, to pull into that line. So as I was sitting there doing my thing, you know, I don't know, maybe working on my kid's deposit slip or whatever it was, talking, a car pulled in. And wouldn't you know, they pulled up in line and they happened to be in the line that had the car that moved first. Can you imagine that? So here I am, as any dad would be, and I sighed deeply and I expressed my disgust at not being in the right line. But one of my boys, and I don't remember which one it was, but one of them made an observation that stuck with me. And this is what he said. He said, you know, you're not a very patient person, Dad. (laughs) Of course, in the moment, I played it off like it was, you know, it was no big deal. But later, I really had to stop and I had to consider what my boy had said to me, and I had to allow my heart to be challenged by it. Do you know why? Because as believers, we are to be people who are patient. Did you know that? Patience is proof that we really are believers. I want you to allow that to sink in. Patience is proof that we really are believers. It's one proof that you truly believe what you say that you believe. Friends, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of the believer, He produces certain behaviors or characteristics as a result. There are things that happen in our lives as the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence inside of us, and those things are known as the fruits of the Spirit. And you can find them in Galatians 5. And if I were to take you to verse 22, you would see that it says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. What is it? Patience. There it is. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things. But friends, listen, if you are a believer, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Romans 8, 9 tells us that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So what that means is that if the Holy Spirit lives in you, and friends, if you are a believer, He does, then you will display the characteristics or the fruits of the Spirit, and one of them is patience. In fact, Romans 2, 7 tells us that it is those who are patient that are the ones who will receive eternal life. And if you think about that for a moment, I want you to ask yourselves, who are those, who are they who have the promise of eternal life? Well, people who are not believers do not, as you know, receive eternal life. They have stored up for them what? Eternal punishment and torment and judgment. That's the instruction of Scripture. It is believers who are the ones who inherit eternal life. 
The author of Hebrews wrote that it is through faith and through patience that we inherit the promises of God in chapter 6 and verse 12. I trust that you'll remember from our time in Ephesians chapter 4 that Paul urged us to walk around peripateo in a way that is worthy of the calling that we have received. And how do we do that? Well, in verses 1 and 2, he says, I urge you to walk around, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and what? Say it. Patience. I urge you to walk around with humility, gentleness, and patience. One final point of reference to help reinforce this for you in your minds, if it hasn't gotten there yet, is Paul's instruction to the Colossians. He commands them as believers that they are to be patient. And this is what he says in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Who are the chosen ones of God, friends? Who are the chosen ones? They're believers, aren't they? They're the believers. So he says, clothe yourselves, cover yourselves as believers then, holy and beloved, with what? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. There it is again. So if Scripture makes the point then, and I believe that it very clearly does, that as believers we are to be patient, then we need to understand what it means to be patient. Don't you think that's true? It's important that we understand what it means to be patient. And so to do that, there are two Greek words in the New Testament that I'd like to make sure that you understand this morning. For those of you who are new to us or who may be visiting and you've only been with us for a short time, we take it at Root River Church what we call an expository approach to Scripture, which means that we do our very best to put it in its proper context, both historically and grammatically, so that we can give ourselves the most comprehensive possible understanding of its intent. So for those of you who may be on aware, the New Testament scripture was written in what was known as the Koine, or the common dialect of Greek, which arose from a simplification of the higher Attic Greek language of ancient Greece. So what we do then is we sometimes pause for a few minutes to understand some of the grammatical aspects of the ancient Greek language to make sure that we understand what the authors of New Testament, you know, wanted us to understand. Is that fair? So this morning, I want to do that for a moment if I could. So I'd like to just kind of do a little bit of a word study to help you understand what it means to be patient. I want to help you understand what it means to be patient because as believers, we are commanded to be patient. And I want you to know that it's a lot more than just simply being able to graciously wait in the slowest line at the bank. There's a lot more to it than that. And so the first word I'd like to introduce you to is the word hupomone, which is the noun form of the verb hupomeno. Now, we met this word, rather, in the third verse early in our study of the book of James. It's a compound word which takes the preposition hupo, which means under, and the verb meno, which means to remain, and then it pushes them together to form one word. So if we take that information and we push those two words together to form the compound word hupo meno, it could be best understood to mean to remain under. Does that make sense? To remain under. It means to be patient under, to submit to, or to endure. For our modern understanding, I think it's best for us to think of this term as it may relate to our circumstances, okay? 
just file that away in the back of your minds, that we should relate this term to our circumstances. Now, I'm not talking about patiently enduring the results of your own bad decisions. Make sure that you get this. If you rob a bank and one of our police officers catches you, you're probably going to spend an extended amount of time in jail where you will need to patiently await your release. But that's not what I'm talking about here. Remember that when James wrote his letter, he was writing it to Christian Jews who were being persecuted for what they believed and as such had been scattered throughout the known Mediterranean world. They were not being treated as their actions may have deserved. They had wrongly been thrust into terrible and unjust circumstances. And knowing the horrific circumstances that many of them faced, James wrote them a letter And in chapter 1, he says, count it all joy, brothers. Count it all joy when you face diverse trials of many kinds. And then in verse 3, he told them why they should be joyous in those kinds of conditions. And this is what he says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces hupomone. There's that word we just talked about. There it is. And that word, depending on what version you have in your Bible app, will probably translate this verb differently. But they all mean the same thing. In fact, if you take a look at the ESV, which is what I like to use, you'll see that it says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Others say the testing of your faith produces perseverance or endurance. And others say it produces patience. Do you see? steadfastness, perseverance, endurance, or patience. The message is that the testing of your faith enables you to patiently endure and to remain under horrible circumstances. Do you see that? It enables you to remain under horrible circumstances. But if you think about it, I mean, this is a first century church. How horrible could the circumstances have possibly been? Well, they were pretty bad. Church had largely, since its inception, faced localized persecution. But it was at about the same time that the book of James was written that the Roman emperor Nero had made persecutions of Christians an organized effort by the Roman government. In fact, it was on July 19th of 64 AD that Nero himself is reported to have ignited a fire near the Circus Maximus in Rome. After the fire burned for about nine days, it had destroyed nearly two-thirds of the city of Rome. Nero was reported to have been standing on the top of a building singing as he watched it burn. Tacitus, the ancient historian, wrote that Nero blamed Christians for the blaze and persecution now sanctioned by the Roman government reached incredible proportions. Persecutions that had been localized now became sanctioned by the government, and they were terrible. Many Christians, when caught, were forced to fight wild animals in the arena as entertainment to bloodthirsty crowds, and they were mauled and they were eaten by wild animals. It's reported that Nero himself, would, when he caught Christians, would cover them in pitch, fasten them to stakes, and set them ablaze to use them to light his garden parties. They were beheaded. They were slaughtered in unimaginable ways. They were called cannibals for their practice of communion. They were accused of sacrificing children in their times of worship. They were accused of all forms of sexual perversion in their times of worship. And under Roman government-sanctioned threats of torture and abuse, 
Christians were forbidden to meet. Yet, these people were so committed to meeting together to worship that they would sneak out and they would meet at night in caves or in wooded areas, even at the risk of being tortured and murdered. Yet, never did they fight, never did they resist. On the contrary, James told them that they should count it what? Pure joy. Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you're tied to a stake and set ablaze. Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you are fed to wild animals. Remain under this kind of testing. Endure it that it may make you complete. Endure it that it may make you mature in your faith, James says. Count it pure joy to be mistreated and abused. Friends, there's no doubt that Christians in the world today face terrible mistreatment and even violent persecution in in certain areas of the world. I want you to know that that's true. Christian churches are bombed in Sri Lanka, in North Korea, and in some parts of India, Christians are beaten for their beliefs. In communist countries, Christians are still dragged away, imprisoned, and even murdered. Open Doors reports that in 2019, there were 2,983 Christians around the world that were killed for their faith. There were 9,488 churches and other Christian buildings that were attacked. 3,711 believers were detained without trials. They were arrested and they were sentenced and imprisoned. Under extreme persecution, believers in North Korea, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen attempt to meet secretly and worship quietly to avoid mistreatment. As in the history of the church, and I want you to know as it's going to be in the church of Revelation, Those people who are persecuted today don't fight and they don't resist. They humbly and prayerfully withstand mistreatment. Do you know what they do? They hupomeno. They graciously and patiently remain under mistreatment that their faith may be made mature and that their testimony may be made powerful. And I want you to know that though the day is certainly on the horizon, today in America, few people have any idea what it means to hupomeno in the face of trial and testing. Then there's another word that's translated patience, and that's the one I want to introduce you to today. It's from our passage in James chapter 5 and verse 7. So if you go with me now to chapter 5, I'm going to take you to our passage. Beginning in verse 7, it says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So here we have from James, a command to be patient. And as we've seen it several times in the past, this command is what we would call a present active imperative. So a good way to translate it is to understand it as ongoing action. So it would sound like this, be continually being patient. You see, be continually being patient. So a good way to to translate it is to understand it as ongoing action. Be continually being patient. Now, it's important that we note that this word translated patient is not the same one that we saw before. It's not hupomeno to remain under. This one is a little bit different. This is from the noun makrothumia. And when we were in the book of Ephesians, I spoke to you about the word thumos. And I hope that you will remember this. It is passionate rage which boils up suddenly. And Paul said, don't be filled with this macrothumia that just bursts open unexpectedly. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Somebody pulls in front of you in the line at the bank and all of a sudden, snap, you explode. That's thumos. 
And then attached to this word is the prefix macros, which means long as opposed to micros or micro, which is small or short, okay? So when we push these all together, this is what we get. Macrothumos, and it's long-tempered. It means to be long-fused. Imagine the one with a short fuse. Uh, uh, Microthumia, maybe, would be somebody who had a short fuse, but this is long-fused. He's somebody who has a long temper. And what James says is be patient. Friends, have long fuses. Do you see? Have a long fuse. Don't be quick to bake up a rage cake for your friends. And when we think of this kind of patience, it's best to think of it not so much as it applies to unfavorable circumstances, but more in relation to other people. Okay? And especially as it applies to other believers. So he says in chapter 1, patiently, humbly, Gently endure your circumstances, no matter how crummy they are. Count them joy. And then in chapter 5, he says, and don't be quick to become upset with one another over it. Did you hear that? Don't be quick to become upset with one another over it. Let patience be the rule of your daily Christian lives. Well, that's easy for you to say. You don't see the stuff. James never had a clue the kinds of things that this guy is posting on social media. James never heard some of the dumb things that she has said to me. But James says, look, it doesn't matter. Endure it gently. Quiet your spirit. Wait patiently and quietly endure. But Scott, I can't help it. It just makes me so mad. How am I supposed to be patient when my rights are violated? How am I supposed to be patient when I'm mistreated? How am I supposed to be patient with people whose views are just so wrong? And I want you to know that James dealt with those same things. And so in our passage today, he gives us some tools to help. And I want you to know that it starts, friends, listen closely, it starts by getting your eyes off of yourselves. Get Your eyes off of yourselves. Get your eyes off of how crummy your current situation is and look forward to what's in store for you. Take a look at verse 7. He says, be patient therefore, brothers, until what? Until the coming of the Lord. Be forward looking. Don't forget, friends, that the Lord is coming. Don't forget that He is coming soon. He's not far away. He's coming to take you to an eternal home that He has been preparing for you for thousands of years. I've said it many times, especially in the last few weeks, friends, you need to, this has to sink in deeply. The problems of this world are temporary. The problems of this world are passing. This world's economy is going to fail. This world's system of government is going to collapse. This world's healthcare system ultimately won't keep you from aging and dying. Global warming ultimately is not going to destroy the earth because the wrath of God is going to do it first. It's all temporary. He's preparing a place for us. That's eternal. He's preparing a place for us that is inconceivably better than what we have here. Don't allow yourselves to become so attached to the dysfunctional systems of this collapsing world that you lose the joy of anticipation of the eternal place that He's preparing for you right now. Listen, 
The place that he is preparing for us now is untouched by the curse of sin. Do you understand? The place that he is preparing for us is untouched by illness and death. The place he is preparing for us is untouched by sorrow. There is no inequality there. It is untouched by the constraints of time. All of those things are temporary and they relate only to your time here on earth. But I've been waiting and I've been waiting and I've been waiting. Scott, it's been 2,000 years since the ascension of Christ and he still hasn't come back yet. Can I remind you what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.8? He said, don't overlook this one fact. You who think in those terms, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Listen, friends, on earth, while we have been here, it's been 2,000 years. But I want you to know there's no time in heaven. It's like been like two days for God. Do you see that? Just wait. It's coming. Verse 7, James says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In Israel, the farmer would plant in the fall and he would harvest in the spring. There were two rainy seasons called the early rain and the latter rain. I think we confuse those a lot of times and we don't, I think we over spiritualize the early rain and the latter rain. The early rain was simply a rainy season that was around the time of planting in October or November. And then there was a little rain here and there intermittently through the rest of the, you know, the early part of the year. But the second or the latter rainy season was right before the harvest in the March to April time frame. Now, in those days, as we mentioned last week, the farmer lived to provide another day's provision for his family. That was his purpose. He wanted just enough to make sure that he could feed his family one more day. He planted his seed in the fall, and he watched the rain, and he watched the weather, and he watched what happened. And I want you to imagine that as his family's food resources began to dwindle, as they were depleted, he watched the crops begin to take root and he watched them grow. And can you imagine him walking out to the field anxiously, seeing how many of the new seeds were beginning to take root and there were little little shoots beginning to pop up through the earth. But by the time the second rain or the latter rain came and the crops were fully mature and ready to be harvested, he was probably out of food or very, very nearly out of food. In fact, maybe he had even been out for several weeks. So when the harvest was ready, it was precious to him. It was valuable to him. And he was excited to harvest it. But now think, what if he and his family had run out of food in January and they decided, well, we're out of food, so we're going to have to run out to the field and we're going to have to take in the crops early so that we can feed the family. And let's suppose that he had gone running out to the field. What do you think he would have brought back? Nothing. Because the crops would not have been ready. They weren't mature. There was nothing there for them to eat yet. So he had to wait. He had to be patient for the coming of the crops. Do you see? James is saying, church, that's what you need to do. Look, the Lord is coming back. He's coming back. Don't try to run out there and force it to happen too early. He knows the right time. And he knows when the times of the Gentiles are complete. And when that happens, he will return. Just wait, because it's only been a couple of days. 
Allow the fruit to grow. Allow the fruit to mature. It's coming. Just get your hearts ready. Look forward to the fulfillment of the promise. Don't spend all of your time, don't spend all of your energy worrying about and focusing on all the crazy things that are going on in the world right now. Fix your hearts and on the promise of the coming of the Lord. You see, that's what he's saying. He's saying, make your hearts stand fast upon looking forward to and staying focused on the time of the harvest. Remember, there is going to be a rich harvest and it's only days away. It's only a couple of weeks away. Just wait, you'll get there. And then James uses an illustration to help us understand the Lord's coming. And verse 9, he says, don't grumble against one another, brothers so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In the courtroom, the judge would hear the facts and the testimony, and even now that's the way it happens here in America. We have a jury that hears the facts and the testimony of a case. And then the judge would retire to a private area where he could review the information, and he could reach a decision or a verdict. You can imagine a centurion and a few of his soldiers keeping watch over the court and controlling the crowd while the judge is away. Imagine that in your mind with me. And as the judge has made his decision, he's been gone now for some time, he's made his decision, and he's making his way back to the courtroom. And as he approaches the door to make his return into the courtroom, he hears some noise inside the courtroom. He hears the arguing and the bickering. Maybe they're groaning and grumbling against those whom the judge has appointed to be in charge while he was away. Maybe that's who they're groaning and grumbling against. But specifically, the Word tells us that they are groaning and grumbling against who? Against each other. Listen. They are groaning and grumbling against each other. That's the imagery here. Christ is returning soon, friends. He is standing right outside the door. He's getting ready to walk through the door. Ask yourselves a question here. What is it that he hears from us as he stands on the other side of the door getting ready to enter in? Do you think that he would be pleased with what we're saying to one another? Do you think he would be pleased with what we're saying about those whom he has appointed to be in charge over us while we wait? Do you think he would hear us grumbling and groaning and complaining about one another? Do you think that he would hear us ripping on and complaining against our brothers and sisters in the church? James says, do not do that. You are inviting the judgment of God on yourselves by moaning and groaning and sighing deeply about one another. Don't do that, he says. Friends, that's not what I want him to hear when he returns and stands at the door. When he stands at the door outside of Root River Church, you know what I want him to hear? I want him to hear gentle encouragement spoken from loving and patient hearts. I want him to hear us say to one another, it's okay. He's coming back soon. We can get through this together. That's what I want him to hear from Root River Church. Friends, ask yourselves, does my conduct, does the way that I speak reflect the heart of someone who expects Him to return at any moment? Would I say these things if I knew that He was going to enter the door in mid-sentence? Do you expect Him to return at any moment? Do you? Listen, He's right outside the door. What does He hear from you? 
as you face difficult times. And then James gives us two examples of patient waiting. The first in verse 10 says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Okay, what about the prophets, James? What about them? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that they paid a very, very high price for speaking the word of the Lord. Did you know that? They spoke a very high price for sharing the word of the Lord with the people of Israel. Look at verse 35 in chapter 11. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life or gain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute. They were afflicted. They were mistreated. And what does he say? The world was not worthy of them. The world did not deserve them. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and they lived in dens and in caves. And the world did not deserve them. Such incredible mistreatment. Such incredible persecution. Such incredible injustice. Men so faithful and so patient in the face of terrible circumstances that the Bible tells us that the world did not even deserve to have them around. A sinful and broken and fallen world didn't deserve such great men as these. And I'm going to skip down to verse 11 and I want you to see what he says here about Job. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know the story of Job, don't you? Satan attacked Job and he took away everything that Job had. He took away his family. He killed his children. Job lost all of his crops. He lost all of his possessions. Satan afflicted Job with a terrible and a painful disease. And he had sores all over his body. And Satan was even cruel enough to leave Job's unsupportive wife with him to make him even more miserable. And you know what she said? She said to Job, Job, just give up. Why don't you just curse God and die? That's how bad it was. And in it all, Job knew that he knew what it was to stand up under terrible circumstances. To hupomeno, do you see, friends? He knew what it was to be long fused with his miserable wife. He knew what it was to be long fused and have long patience with his stupid friends. He remained under it. He endured it. In fact, much more than enduring it, look at what Job says. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. He can do what he wants with it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Unbelievable faith. Incredible suffering. Yet, He refused under such terrible circumstances to moan and to groan and to sigh against God. Do you see? At the end of it all, this is what he said in chapter 42. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. And what he was saying is, now God, I really know who you are. You see, in the good times... I didn't have a deep understanding of the faithfulness of God. But after I've lost everything, after I've been treated unjustly, now I get it. Because the difficult times have shown me the faithfulness of God. The prophets, Job, 
Such great men, such incredible examples to believers who need to understand what it means, friends, to remain under difficult circumstances without groaning, without moaning, without the deep sigh, but with long and patient fuses. Do you understand? That's the instruction of James this morning. And may I just remind you of something? As you consider the example of the prophets, as you consider the example of Job, as you consider the example of those people who are in such terrible parts of the world like Yemen and Iran and Iraq where Christians are openly persecuted, may I remind you of what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 12 and verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Friends, the church in America is going through some of the most difficult times of its short history. But when we put it into the proper perspective, when we compare it to those in history who've been set afire, who've been thrown to the wild animals, when compared to those who have been flogged and stoned and sawn in two, when compared to the tragic afflictions of Job, may I suggest to you that the Church of America has had a relatively comfortable life, wouldn't you say? Yet, as blessed as we've been, as protected as we've been, I wonder, as the judge stands outside the door of this blessed and this untested nation, what does he hear from us? Does he hear moaning and groaning, deep sighs, resistance, fighting and complaining? This year, we've seen some tragic things, but in our struggle as believers... We have not yet been tested to the point of shedding our own blood for our faith. I want you to know there's a time where that is going to happen. The good news is you're all believers and you'll be raptured before that happens. But I want you to know that the instruction of James is not that we become frustrated. The instruction of James is not that we run away. His instruction is to remain under the pressure without fighting and without arguing to endure mistreatment in humility and in kindness and in love for the Lord's sake. Don't allow the light and temporary afflictions of this world to ruin the testimony of your faith. We don't want to be a reason that the world may say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I want nothing to do with it. I'm going to close this morning with this instruction from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says in verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our own ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By what? Listen. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, by knowledge, and by, say it, patience. We stand up under, we endure with long fuses, in gentleness, and in prayer. May I encourage you to just pause, to consider your response and the response of your family in this time of difficulty? What does your response say 
to the unsaved people of this world about your faith? What does it tell people about your faith? What does your response to temporary affliction speak to the people right here in this church body? Does it speak patience and encouragement to them? Do you put your arms around them? And you say to them, we can get through this together. We can make it. The Lord's right outside the door. He's going to be here soon. Besides, we haven't yet had to shed any blood. Is that what you say? Or does your behavior speak groaning and moaning and fighting? Remember, friends, the judge is right outside the door. He can walk in at any moment. What does he hear from Root River Church? Father, I thank you for your patience with me. And I thank you, God, that you have waited and that you've been long-fused and long-tempered with me. And I thank you, God, that it is your kindness and your long temper that has brought me to this place of repentance. I pray, God, that you would forgive me for my moaning and my groaning and my grumbling. And I pray, Lord, that you would help my words to be an encouragement to the people of this church body. I pray, Lord, that my attitude would be an encouragement to the people of this world. I pray that people could look to me and they could say there's something different about him. There's a hope in him that I don't have. And I pray that same prayer, God, for everyone in this room. Let us not be an obstacle. Let us not be at fault in our ministry. But help us, Lord, to commend ourselves to this world in every way, in great endurance and in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Allow us to display purity, knowledge of the Word of God, and patience. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.